came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings in news, arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Monday the 15th of November. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Today I'm very excited to bring you an amazing interview from the other side of the world to one of this planet's Foremost SETI researchers, Dr. Jill Tata. Hello, Jill. Hello, how are you, Brandon? Very well, thanks, Jill. And I'm quite awestruck out here in an isolated part of rural Australia to be zooming across 18 time zones to California. And it's such a pleasure today to speak with Dr. Jill Tata who is Emeritus Chair for SETI Research at the SETI Institute. She's served as Project Scientist for NASA's SETI program and has spent 35 years at the SETI Institute, a non-profit organisation she helped launch in 1984. She and the SETI team are scanning space for signals that could reveal intelligent alien life, and she recently stepped down as the director of SETI research after 28 years and is one of the most lauded and accomplished SETI researchers on our planet. And it would take the whole podcast to list all of Jill's amazing achievements, and we can't do that. But it's important that our listeners know that they're hearing from the person who's been named one of the time 100 most influential people in the world and the inspiration for the character of Ali Arroway in Carl Sagan's Contact, a role played by Jodie Foster in the film. And thanks for speaking with us, Jill. And I hope you and your family and friends have all been safe from those terrible wildfires you had in California last summer. Well, we have some rain today, so that should be the end of our wildfire season. But uh, they have been pretty spectacular Fortunately, not affecting anyone um, around me, but uh, they did threaten the observatory at Hat Creek for a while. 
Wow. Okay. Okay. So before we talk about your SETI work, your rich research program, your outreach work and the Ellen Array and Breakthrough Listen, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Jill, and how you became interested in science and space in the first place? And I did read a story about you when you were a child walking along the beach in the Florida Keys with your dad. And listeners can hear this great story direct from Jill in an NPR interview at tinyearl.com forward slash Jill Tarter or lowercase. But first, a bit about your background. I grew up in Eastchester, New York, which is a commute town outside of New York City. And I spent all of my weekends and free time with my dad, hunting and fishing and camping. My dad had been a professional football player, and I was his only child, so I was the son that he got to have, and I loved it. But at one point, I think maybe seven or eight years old, my mother clearly had a talk with my father, and uh, my father then had a talk with me. And when my father and I had talks, he sat me up on a washing machine so that I could be eye level with him. And he said, your mom thinks you should be spending more time with her learning how to do girl things. And I don't think there was anything he could have said that would have made me angrier. So I slammed my fist down and I said, I don't know why I can't do anything that I want to. Oh, that's wonderful. So... After finishing school, you completed an undergraduate degree in engineering physics at Cornell in New York. Then it's 3,000 miles right across America to UC Berkeley, where you did your MA and then your PhD on brown dwarfs. And you are credited with coining the term brown dwarfs in 1975 during your doctorate research. Now, Some astronomers refer to brown dwarfs as failed stars, while others dub them superplanets. What are brown dwarfs, Jill? Well, brown dwarfs form like a star, that is, they accrete, but they don't have enough mass to get hot enough at their centers to fuse hydrogen to helium stably. They do it for a short period and then they just continue to collapse. So you never get this stable nuclear fusion, which is what makes a star shine. I was trying to figure out what these might look like to observers because my thesis advisor and I were wondering if these small things might account for what at the time we called the missing mass in the galaxy. We now call it dark matter, right? But Back then, uh, I was trying to make a model for these stars and trying to predict their colors. And I couldn't, our opacity tables were so poor at low density and low temperature that I actually never could fit an atmosphere onto my model. And so I didn't know what color they would be. So I called them brown because Edmund Land who was the inventor of Polaroid, had once said brown is not a color. So they became brown dwarfs and it took another 25 years before they were ever actually found. And now we see them in great abundance. 
Oh, yes, and that's so cool in many ways. Okay, then you worked on your first SETI search, which you called Serendip, the search for extraterrestrial radio emissions from nearby developed intelligent populations. And this was at the Hat Creek Radio Observatory, which was later to become the home of the Allen Telescope Array, which we'll hear about a bit later. But first, could you tell us about your work at Arecibo as the project scientist for NASA's high-resolution microwave survey? Right. So NASA got interested in SETI in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. And we did what you do in NASA. Is we, we held a bunch of workshops to try and figure out how we should do it. And the first thing we had to figure out was gee, do other stars have planets? Because we had no idea. The only planets we knew about were the ones in our own solar system. So we set off with working groups to try and figure out how to detect planets if they existed around nearby stars. And Bill Baruki, who was the lead scientist for the Kepler spacecraft mission, was part of that working group. That's how Bill got interested in looking for planets. And almost 25 years to the day after that first workshop, the Kepler mission was launched and it was extraordinarily successful. And it told us that indeed, essentially every star has at least one planet. Yep. We got all got started with SETI and we felt good about that. And then we decided that As the Cyclops report, which had been published in the early 70s, which was a workshop again between NASA Ames and Stanford, which suggested that if you wanted to find extraterrestrial technologies, you should build an array of 100 meter telescopes, 1600 of them, right? The price tag on that project was rather high. It never got done. And we learned a lot more about interferometry in the subsequent years. So when NASA got around to deciding they wanted to do a SETI project, and they didn't want to start with interferometry because that was too hard. So we looked around the globe for large single dish telescopes. And we were going to use the Jodrell Bank Telescope in UK, the Arecibo Telescope in Puerto Rico, the Nancy Telescope in France, and of course, the Parkes Telescope in Australia. And so we wrote Memorandum of Understanding and we got permissions up the chain to use the funds that we had to to buy time on those telescopes. And then when Congress terminated NASA's SETI program, I immediately called up the directors of those telescopes and said, if I can find the money, can I still have the time? Yep. And that was the first step in, in Project Phoenix and rising from the ashes of congressional termination. And that's what we set off to do, to find the money so that we could continue to go to the telescopes with the special purpose equipment we've been building and try and complete the search that NASA had intended. But we could only complete the targeted search part of the NASA project because it was supposed to be bimodal. It was supposed to do 
sensitive searches of a number of targets, about a thousand stars, but then also a complete sky survey. But the sky survey depended on using the 34 meter telescopes of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory or the Deep Space Network. Yep. And when we lost the NASA funding, we also lost the, the Deep Space Network. So we did do the targeted search and I think we did a very good job and we learned a lot of things, um, but we couldn't get to the sky survey. That's only been picked up again in the last few years. But that didn't stop you. There's plenty of projects like Project Phoenix um, come through and a little diversion here. And would you like to talk about the relationships that scientists can develop with their research tools? Like a lot of us teared up when Cassini flatlined on Saturn a couple of years ago. And you mentioned before the Parks dish. We have a deep affection for it here in Australia. And uh, that's on a national level. How did SETI scientists respond to the collapse of that beautiful Arecibo dish? Well, that was just so heart-wrenching. We had spent lots and lots of time observing at Arecibo. We had great relations with the scientists and the technicians there. We really enjoyed using that telescope, and we actually helped them to allow remote observing, because when we observed it out of a telescope, we have to take control of the telescope with our equipment. Yep. So we helped them take the first step at making that telescope available for remote observing. And the Puerto Rican culture loves Halloween and Christmas and um, All Saints Day and we would decorate the control room where piece of it that we worked in for all these different holidays that we spent down there. We went through a couple of hurricanes at the telescope and it survived those, but uh, not this last one. And uh, not, you know, those, those cables. I actually have a picture of me sitting on one of those cables, 500 feet above the dish. It was a very special opportunity when a French newspaper sent a photographer to Puerto Rico to do a photo shoot for a spread that they were doing in Le Monde. And by putting up a one-day insurance policy, the photographer and I were allowed to climb the tower and go out on that, those cables. And so I, I know how big they were. I know just unimaginable that they could actually snap. Yeah. And what a treasure that photo must be. Thanks, Jill. Okay, let's get back to the science of SETI, the wow signal. It's an important part of SETI history where Jerry Amon famously annotated a computer printout with the word wow to designate an anomalous signal back in 1977. Could you talk us through the process of signal analysis and how that's changed over time? And what are the current protocols? What do they look like? Is it all AI now? Not all, but we're starting to get into that business, which is really good. The wow signal. Well, first, I'm pretty rude about saying that if I had been running that Ohio State search, 
you would never have heard of the wow signal because it was really early days, right? Very, very crude computing. They had a transit instrument. So you don't pick up that big football field and move it around. You can tilt one end of it. So the sky goes overhead and they had a plan where they had two receivers, the east receiver and then the west receiver, and a signal that was coming from the sky and moving at sidereal rate like a distant planet might, would pass through the east receiver, die away, and then be picked up in the west receiver. Well, this wow signal didn't do that. It only went through one of the receivers and they don't know which one. So there's a big swath of the sky where the signal might have been coming from if indeed it was coming from the sky. And over the years, a number of observers have used various different radio telescopes to relook that area of the sky to see if that signal could be recaptured. But for me, I don't think it's fair to change the rules after you start observing. So we have a certain set of criteria that an interesting candidate has to uh, satisfy before you actually take it seriously. And if it doesn't pass those criteria, we just add it to our uh, list of interfering signals. And so the wow signal didn't pass the tests that they had set up in advance, but it was so strong, so unusual, that in fact, they got excited about it. In our case, we observe with two telescopes, or in the case of the Allen Telescope Array, 42 telescopes. And we have to see the signal in each of the telescopes, and it has to have the correct time delay, Doppler and Doppler shift to be appropriate to a signal coming from the sky. And if we see it and we see it in a second antenna, then we go back and we reobserve it. And then we do that, go through a cycle five times and we have to see it each time. And we have to not see it when we're pointing in another direction. So if a signal survives all of that, then our phones start to ring. Indeed, and may they ring loud and often. Uh, We had a similar situation down here in parks where the parks dish was um, catching the sound of a microwave oven being opened. Yes, the peritons. Yes, indeed. Okay, let's take on now another important tangent and... Can I ask you to tell us about the impact of Frank Drake's famous equation and how that has evolved over the years? Well, I think it is a fantastic way to organize our ignorance, but I'm uncomfortable with calling it an equation because that makes people think you can solve it, that there's an answer to that. And really, there is no answer. There are just a lot of unknowns. And it helps us to think about all of the conditions that are probably required for life to exist somewhere beyond Earth. 
But the last term in that mathematical construction is L. And that stands for the longevity of the technology that is emitting and that you are trying to find. And that is completely unknown. I mean, we've had appropriate technology for a hundred years. So maybe you can say that's a lower limit L, but what might be the upper limit? I mean, we live in a galaxy that's 10 billion years old. Most of the stars in our neighborhood of the galaxy are a billion years older than than the sun. Uh, What is the limit on that number? And given the huge uncertainties, it means that you really can't calculate anything with it, but you can tell a good story. You can get people involved with thinking about what's necessary for life and technologies to exist somewhere else. And hopefully we can encourage people to practice environmental, just environmental practices, which will make us uh, survive longer rather than shorter at the moment. There's certainly some big questions out there and a lot of work that we have to do. Look, I always include a couple of questions that open the door for you. Would you like to tell us about perhaps the possibility of life in our solar system, like uh, we know a lot about extremophiles. Would you like to talk about, rather than distant life at the moment, but what about life in our solar system? That seems to be getting closer all the time. Well, there certainly was a lot of interest in Venus in this past year when a claim was made that um, phosphine gas had been detected in the cloud levels of uh, twin planet. And it got everyone excited because when we went through all of the chemical matrices of how we know to create phosphine on earth, it always involved biology. And so did phosphine mean that there was actually some kind of life floating in the clouds of Venus? So people got really excited and uh, lots of back and forth. In the end, it now seems like the identification of phosphine, which was only a single spectral line and not a family of lines, was probably incorrect. And probably what we're seeing is sulfur dioxide. But nevertheless, it got people thinking about what Carl Sagan used to call floaters, sinkers, and bobbers life forms that might exist in the clouds of Venus. And of course, we're really interested in looking for evidence of life on Mars, either extinct or maybe even extant subsurface life in liquid water aquifers. And we're going to to great lengths um, to explore that planet. And we're also trying to be very careful that we don't take life to Mars and contaminate it, right? So we, um, there are international protocols set by COSPAR about what kinds of levels of sterilization are required for spacecraft that are going to be on the surface of a body or could possibly fall out of orbit onto the surface of a body. And we are eager 
to do that exploration before humans get there because we humans are so dirty that we'll contaminate the planet instantly. So we'd really like to look for life while it's still pristine. And if we find this evidence, you know, that Brendan, there's a, another question we have to ask, which is, are we Martians? So early on, Mars was wetter and warmer about the time that life was getting started on Earth. And it was also the case that in the early solar system, especially, but still going on today, rocks get swapped between Mars and, and Earth. Yep. In our meteorite collections, we actually have pieces of Mars, little chips of Mars. And we know that it's Mars because of the, the content of the gases that are frozen into these rocks. So what if life started on Mars and then got chipped off and, and hid away inside a rock and got transported to Earth and seeded the Earth? Might life on Earth be related to life on Mars, early life on Mars? So exciting things to think about. In terms of the other bodies in our solar system, well, Enceladus and Europa, giant moons of Saturn and Jupiter, have cryovolcanoes spewing out of their south poles. And we would love to fly through those plumes and collect samples and analyze those samples to see if there are any biological molecules, building blocks of life. Because we have these sort of black smokers at the bottom of the ocean, and we think those might be a good model for what might be at the bottom of the oceans on Europa and Enceladus. And there's lots of life around the black smokers. Maybe there's lots of life on the bottoms of the oceans on those two giant moons. We'd like to investigate that. And hopefully we will, and who knows what chemicals or organisms are hitchhiking on comets and asteroids that are yet to reach us. Right. Okay. Look, I know our listeners would love to hear about the current SETI projects and their associated technologies. First of all, can you tell us about the Allen Array or FAST or CHIME or Meerkat or Parks and how powerful instruments are being harnessed as we speak into SETI projects like Breakthrough Listen. That's correct. Breakthrough Listen has been buying time, renting time on very large telescopes around the world. And they haven't been building receivers. They usually use the telescopes at the frequencies that are already accessible. But what they have been doing is building these absolutely exquisite signal processing backends. So when we started with the Serendip project at Hat Creek all those years ago, we had 100 spectral channels that we could investigate. Today, the Breakthrough Listen systems that are based on um, PGAs and GPUs, they have billions of channels that they can look at simultaneously. And so they're in a mode of single dish observing 
where instead of using multiple dishes and using requirements to see the signal in each of the dishes, they're using single dishes and they're nodding on source and off source and on source and off source and requiring that an interesting signal be seen when they're looking on the source, but not when they're looking off the source. If they see it both on and off, it's interference and they discard it. But the signal processing hardware and the algorithms that they're developing are really, really wonderful. And in fact, there are terabytes of data that Breakthrough Listen has put out for anybody to explore and try and develop new signal processing algorithms on. So that is available in the public domain. And they will be going, let's see, they're using parks, they're using the GBT, they're using the automated planet finder at Lick Observatory to do an optical search. They are working at Jodrell Bank. They are beginning to operate at Meerkat and intend to continue as Meerkat grows into the square kilometer array. They can intend to continue that. Um, They're working with FAST to build instrumentation. The Melora Wide Field Array is also being used. So Mainly these telescopes are being used in what we call a commensal observational mode. Ah, and they are beginning to work with the very large array in Socorro, New Mexico, again, in this commensal mode, which means that you make a copy of the voltages as a function of time coming out of each telescope. And then you can analyze your copy to look for engineered signals while the astronomer uses their copy of the data to do whatever the observing program that they proposed to do was. And so when you're observing commensally, you can't point the telescope. You get to look where the astronomers are looking. But in some sense, uh, we can't definitively say that we know where to point and when. So this commensal data allowing us to be on the air almost all the time is terrific. And I think we will be doing more of that and it will be augmented with new algorithms that are developed by artificial intelligence. So in the past, when we looked and analyzed data, we asked our computers, does this particular pattern in frequency and time exist in the data? So we told it the type of signal that we were looking for. But now, as we get to benefit from artificial intelligence, we in fact can say, look at this data and tell me if it contains any information. We don't have to specify in advance the pattern. So we can allow for a larger number of modulation types, a larger number of signals that we may never have thought of before. And the machine can be told, get back to us when you find some information content. So it's a new mode. It's a a new threshold or frontier for SETI. I think it's great. Fantastic. Bigger eyes and ears all around. And it's great to hear that the breakthrough listen data is being um, put online for people. I remember a few years ago, I and many, many Uh, Others were involved in a citizen science project called SETI at Home, where 
we donated the um, the cycles on our computers when we weren't using them to analyze data for a SETI project. Yeah, I think SETI at home put uh, citizen science and distributed computer on, on the map. I mean, it wasn't the first to use distributed computing. There were some folks who were trying to um, factor Marcin primes and things like that by spreading the work around a number of machines. But SETI at home was so sexy, so inviting that it really did get citizen science up and running. And now, of course, with the Zooniverse network, you can do anything. Yeah, there's so many great projects around now in citizen science. It's just wonderful. Now, everyone's hoping that the James Webb Space Telescope, which is being launched soon, hopefully on the 18th of December, everyone's hoping it'll be a game changer. And what are your thoughts about the JWST and what about other future technologies? How can you see them contributing to SETI research? Well, it's very important to ask precisely that question right now because James Webb and Space, the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, the move and um, evolution from 10-meter optical telescopes to telescopes that are 30 or 40 meters, We'd like to think more broadly about what they might image that might be an indication of someone else's technology. So we've talked for a long time about trying to analyze the atmospheres of distant exoplanets, looking for biosignatures, looking for evidence of disequilibrium chemistry that might indicate life on the surface of the planet. But now we're trying to ask ourselves, what might this new generation of much more powerful telescopes show us that would be an indication of a techno signature? So here's one example that radio astronomers can appreciate. So we've been studying pulsars for years and you at Parks and other places have huge databases of pulsar signals. And a pulsar typically has a very precise period. But what if it changed from one period to another period? And indeed, we've seen this in the data because sometimes there are star quakes on the neutron star that change its moment of inertia, so how rapidly it can rotate. But what we've never seen, but really actually might be in the data already taken, or we might find it in new data in the future. We've never seen a pulsar that went from one period to another period and then back to the first. But indeed, that almost natural signal would end up getting caught in the surveys for pulsars. Yep. So that might be a techno signature. We could come up with other kinds of things about mirrors, orbiting planets to bring uh, a tidally locked planet to bring light to the, the um, far side of the planet and what might the glint from such mirrors look like. We can think about lasers, uh, accelerating light sails and what might those monochromatic laser signals look like as they brush past the earth 
and so we're trying to really expand our thinking and not just talk about radio signals, but talk about techno signatures. Yep, fantastic. And FRBs is some amazing data coming out from them as they, we're finding more and more of them now. It's 2021 now, and almost we're into the second year, well and truly. COVID 19's had uh, a huge impact worldwide. How has COVID impacted on SETI research? Well, it's certainly closed some observatories and it has made it more difficult uh, to get together. We certainly now have gotten very good at having global Zoom meetings. So meetings that, in-person meetings that would have had a regional draw in the past now have a global audience. So that's been good. And we're going to need to keep, when we go back to in-person, we're going to need to keep a component of this virtual meeting because I think it's allowed us to have a much greater, greater reach. And the other thing that COVID has done in a very negative way is something that I hope that SETI can do in a much more positive way. And that's to make the point that we are all connected. And so when I talk to audiences, I try to get them to have a more cosmic perspective of who they are and where they are and when they are. Talking about SETI, I think, has the effect of holding up a mirror to everybody on the planet. And when we look in that mirror, we see all these different faces, right? But in fact, that's not the story. Those faces aren't different. Indeed, when compared to life that may have started and evolved on a distant planet around a different star, we are all the same when compared to that other life. And if we want to have a long future for life on this planet, we have to adapt that we are all the same. We are all earthlings point of view because the challenges that we face for climate change and water and food security in the future are, are going to require cooperation and global solutions to these challenges. So we ought to begin to think of ourselves as earthlings and act that way. And hopefully for a long time, thanks. Now you mentioned audiences. You've got a long history of doing lovely outreach work and the internet is full of your talks and interviews and prize-winning TED Talks and books about you like making contact and hundreds of your articles and your research papers and podcast interviews. And you've written a lot of curriculum for school children. And can you tell us about the breadth of your outreach a moment and why, apart from the mirror, why is it so important to you? Well, we have known from the very beginning that it is probable that this vast exploration that we are undertaking is going to be a multi-generational project. And therefore, we have a very vested interest 
in training our replacements. So it's natural to think about the future and how do we get young people, in particular, in my case, I have a bias for exciting young girls about careers in STEM fields and growing up to, to replace us. So it's a natural. Young people like dinosaurs and ghosts and creepy crawly things and ET. So if you build a curriculum around this question of life beyond earth, it doesn't feel like a struggle to learn. It's a story in which you are involved and you are part. And so the, the science kind of goes down easily. And it's, it's something with which young students can relate. Okay, thanks. And um, to follow up on that, your brilliant career has been devoted to the big existential question for humanity. Are we alone? Why are big questions like this so important, Jill? Well, what are we most interested in? We're most interested in ourselves, right? And we would like to calibrate where we fit into the cosmos. Are there others? Are they smarter than us? Are we more technologically advanced than some others? And given the fact that we only have the physics that we understand today and the technology of the 21st century, that will limit the kinds of things we can look for. But we're doing it to figure out whether we are unique in the universe or we are a standard outcome of chemistry and physics that plays out all over the universe. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a very important outlook. Um, we all struggle with it, Jill. Thank you. Now, the mic is all yours, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face. You mentioned women in STEM before, girls in STEM. What challenges do we face in the lack of diversity or opportunity in science communities, in outreach, in science denialism or career paths, or your own passion for research or that big quest for new knowledge, the microphone's all yours. Well, I like to tell young people that a career in STEM, in science and engineering, is a real privilege because you get to do each day what it takes to answer questions that you have posed and you are interested in. It's not just sit down and do what your boss tells you for eight hours a day. It's how, how can I possibly use my skills to figure out something that no one else has ever figured out before? And that's, you know, it's puzzle solving. It's a game. It's a great pleasure. And it is a privilege. It's a very satisfying way to spend a career. So I, I usually tell people, young people, find something that you like to do and then do all the hard work to get better at doing that thing than anybody else. 
and it'll probably take years of schooling. And, and you know, again, it won't be easy. But once you're better at doing that than anyone else, you can take your skills and you can use them to solve all kinds of different problems. You don't have to work on the same thing all your life. You can take your skill set and go find a problem that needs solving that you think is interesting and go for it. That's my that's my rant. <laughs> and that's fantastic. I'm sitting here with a huge smile on my face right now. Okay, so is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? Well, I'm mindful of the funding roller coaster that SETI has had throughout my career. For now, thanks to the contribution from Yuri Milner, another five years or so of stable funding. But I actually am trying to figure out how we can build an endowment for SETI. And that endowment can stay in place and we can live off and do our SETI research and work and observing from the interest. So again, with this idea that the program may need to be multi-generational, universities have understood this over many generations and they do a very good job with this idea of an endowment. So that's what I'd like to spend some time on now in my career to try and see if we can set up an endowment for SETI that can keep going into the foreseeable future and eliminate these funding fluctuations. Fantastic. Sounds a a bit like the model for uh, the funding of the Nobel Prize, the SETI Prize. Mm -hmm. Very good. Okay. Well, Thank you so much, Dr. Jill Tata. On behalf of all of our listeners, it's been really fabulous and an unmitigated honour to be speaking with you. And thank you especially for your time in your incredible schedule. And congratulations on all your great work. You're an inspiration. Thanks, Jill. Thank you for those kind words, Brendan. Bye-bye. And for those who do the socials thing... You can follow Dr. Jill Tata. She's at Jill Tata on Twitter. And other great SETI feeds to follow are at Berkeley SETI and at SETI Institute. And next month's special guest is Crystal DiNapoli, an inspiring young Camilleroy Indigenous astronomer and astrophysics honours student who is researching star formation rates. She's fabulous. We'll see you then. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. And we'll see you in two weeks when Ian returns with his monthly Skywatch for observers and astrophotographers. Radio Wave!